millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. I write a lot for that buck-toothed, kinky-haired, speech-garbled seven-year-old that's still inside myself, Amanda Gorman. Amanda Gorman has one very distinct memory of the day she realized her upbringing was different. One day after school, she invited her friends over to her house to hang out and watch a little TV. So she popped a tape into her VCR, an episode of her favorite show. But as the opening theme played, her friends looked confused. Like, really confused. They said, Why is your TV black and white? There was a moment of pause. Then Gorman said, Wait, isn't yours? It was the late 2000s. Black and white television had been phased out for a good 30 years. But Gorman didn't know that. She had no idea she could watch an array of channels in full Technicolor. In her household, there were only two TV shows she was allowed to watch. One was the 1950s classic, the Honeymooners. The other was the 60s hit, The Munsters. Both are G-rated and considered to be some of the most beloved sitcoms in television history. 
even featuring some of the first feminist icons to grace the small screen. But they were also 50-plus years old, and Gorman and her siblings started asking questions. So their mother made them a deal. If they wanted to watch something other than Audrey Meadows or a family of friendly monsters, they'd have to present to her a social justice argument defending their choice and explain why said movie or show deserved to have a place in their visual repertoire. If they successfully argued their case, their mother would allow it. So, when Gorman wanted to watch the Disney cartoon Kim Possible, she argued that the lead character was a strong, tough woman. When she wanted to watch The Cheetah Girls, she touted its diversity. But when she wanted to watch America's Next Top Model, not so much. If mom's answer was no, they'd sit down for an in-depth conversation about the messaging and the content they consumed, and instead were encouraged to create their own content that reflected their values, like plays and songs and poetry. Gorman grew up in Los Angeles at what she calls an incredibly odd intersection. She told the New York Times it felt like the hood met black elegance, met white gentrification, met Latin culture, met wetlands. Gorman's mom was a sixth grade English teacher and a single mother who wanted only the best education for her children. So during the day, Gorman attended an avant-garde private school in Santa Monica. And in the evenings, she made her way back through the wetlands to the small apartment she shared with her mother, twin sister, and brother. She says traversing between these worlds gave her an appreciation for different cultures and an understanding of the vastly different realities that can exist within a few blocks of one another. But it also made it incredibly difficult to find her place. She and her siblings were, at times, the only Black students at her school. It could be incredibly isolating. And beyond the clashes of race, class, and culture, there was also one other elephant in the room. Gorman and her sister were born premature. As a result, they suffered from chronic ear infections. And by kindergarten, it became clear those ear infections had lasting effects. They were diagnosed with auditory processing disorders and speech impediments. The biggest challenge was that they couldn't make the R sound. It would come out like a W. Her sister overcame the impediment quickly, but Gorman couldn't shake it. At school, she was teased. The other kids told her she was dumb, that nobody liked her and she should just give up. So instead of spending recess climbing the jungle gym with her classmates, Gorman preferred to turn inward into a world she could control. Books. Reading, writing, and journaling were a safe space, one where she could be as articulate as she wanted to be, where she could use the letter R freely without fear of humiliation. She used one journal in particular to counter her bully's taunts. So when they told her she was a loser, she'd draw a crying face, then write out the rebuttal she only wished she had the courage to say in real life. She'd write, No, I'm a winner. Gorman's teachers also made assumptions about her speech impediment. They took it to mean she was intellectually stunted, that she was behind and likely to stay that way. 
so they placed her into the lowest level reading group in the class. Then one day, when she was 10 years old, Gorman's mother noticed her reading Dr. Seuss on the couch and asked her why she was reading such a simple book. Gorman told her it was the book assigned by her English teacher because it was supposedly at her reading level. Well, the next day, Gorman's mother marched over to her daughter's school, flung open her classroom door, and demanded to speak with her teacher. She said her daughter wasn't just reading full-length novels at home, she was writing full-length novels at home, and insisted she be moved up into the highest-level reading group. Just because she had difficulty saying certain words didn't mean she couldn't understand them. So, reluctantly, the teacher handed Gorman the novel from the highest-level group. The following morning, Gorman brought the novel back to school, finished, cover to cover. She told the teacher it was pretty good, if a bit short. One day, Gorman's teacher read the class an excerpt from the novel Dandelion Wine by Ray Bradbury. And in it, Bradbury compared candy to something else, something completely different that had nothing whatsoever to do with sweets. And Gorman lit up. It was the first time she'd ever heard a metaphor. She says it was like pure magic, the best thing she'd ever heard. The concept opened up a whole new world of literary possibilities. And it was right then and there that she knew. Whatever she did for a living, she'd make sure it was filled with the joy of metaphors and clever wordplay. She couldn't get enough. To Gorman, words were candy. Soon, Gorman's fascination with storytelling became all-consuming. She started writing down the synonyms for every word she could think of, keeping a running list of Ray Bradbury-style metaphors to use in her own works. Little did she know, a handy-dandy thing called a thesaurus already existed. She decided her love of rhyming words would make her a wonderful songwriter, and that became her compass. Gorman started reading two books at a time, three times each. The first for fun, the second time to learn, and the third time to identify what she would improve upon the piece. She started writing stories through the voices of those authors, she said she played literary dress-up, where she'd wear another writer's voice like clothing, mimicking their tones, styles, and verbiage. In the eighth grade, she read Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. It was about a young African-American girl growing up in Ohio in the 40s. The girl was tormented and bullied for the color of her skin, wishing she could have just had blue eyes. If only she did, the world would look so different. That story really affected Gorman. Up until that point, she'd only been reading stories about young girls with blue eyes. She didn't know the heroines in literature could look like her, sound like her. She said internalizing only the stories of white or light-skinned characters nearly stripped her of the ability to write her own story. Morrison's words gave her permission to write from a voice that was unapologetically black and feminist. It also instilled in her a sense of responsibility to write from those places. Because not using her voice meant choosing not to stand on the shoulders of the women that came before her, who boldly told their own stories and afforded Gorman a vantage point to see the broader narrative, begging to be told. Looking at the dark-skinned girl on the cover of The Bluest Eye, she saw herself, 
and she says a switch flipped in her mind. Her melanin wasn't something to hide. It was something to celebrate. So she stopped mimicking the voice of Ray Bradbury and started writing through the voice of Amanda Gorman. It was empowering. Except, if she ever wanted to work with singer-songwriters or perform her own works or even just read them out loud, she knew she'd be forced to expose her greatest weakness, her speech impediment. Gorman underwent extensive speech therapy to help correct her impediment. Strangers assumed she just had a foreign accent, maybe British or Nigerian, which she kind of liked. It was exotic and sounded better to her than the reality. Often, she had her twin sister serve as her translator. But as she practiced processing different sounds, one thing started to become crystal clear. She couldn't sing to save her life. It was a problem. Most songwriters can at least carry a tune or match pitch. She'd have to find a new dream. But that's when Gorman realized something interesting. The songs she'd written didn't have to be sung. If she said them aloud and maintained a melodic cadence, they could seamlessly translate into spoken word poems. By high school, Gorman started partaking in writing workshops and mentorships, and for the first time had to make the courageous decision to publicly display her impediment on stage. She said the letter R became the bane of her human existence because the main themes in her poems were earth, race, and girls. Three hard R's. It was anxiety-inducing and worsened with nerves. Five minutes before her performances, she'd be in the bathroom crossing out those R words and replacing them as best she could. So instead of, girls can change the world, she'd say, young women can shape the globe. If the performance was taped, Gorman would re-watch the video afterward, frustrated. The powerful words she'd carefully selected weren't coming out powerful at all. She was constantly having to self-edit and self-police. But in her lowest moments, Gorman found strength in reminding herself that she was dancing in the footsteps of many before her. Her idol, Maya Angelou, was mute until she was five years old. And Gorman's great-great-great-grandmother and namesake, Amanda, was an enslaved woman who could neither read nor write, silenced in every sense of the word. And that's when it occurred to Gorman that those very R words she struggled to say also had a long history of being silenced. Girls, African Americans, the impoverished, the environment, those who are different. She couldn't shy away from those R's. Gorman started watching the speeches of other poets and orators, like President Obama, Martin Luther King Jr., or the cast of Hamilton. Aaron Burr, Sir from Hamilton, is chock full of R's, so she sang it, over and over and over again. She says, practice makes perfect, until she was ready for her big break. Word around town was that there was an open casting call in Los Angeles for Broadway's The Lion King in New York City. 
and they were looking for a young girl to cast as the lead character, Nala. Gorman decided it would be a great way to jumpstart her career. It would allow her to perform using her sense of cadence and rhythm to deliver the lines with power and eloquence. It would get her noticed. She practiced her lines nonstop. Then came audition day. Gorman walked into the waiting room only to find a hundred other girls there, armed with their stage moms and their experience. Intimidating. But when they called her name, she stepped onto the stage and totally blew it. She panicked and stumbled on her words. It was cringeworthy. And in an effort to salvage the unsalvageable, she even tried walking on her hands across the stage, thinking, if they didn't cast her as Nala, maybe she could land the role of the monkey, Rafiki. She waited afterward as they announced the finalists, but this time, her name was never called. She went home disappointed. Just like songwriting, maybe acting wasn't her path. By the 10th grade, Gorman got an English teacher she really loved, one who knew how to push her to become a better writer. There was only one problem. That year's syllabus sorely lacked diversity. The Gorman twins represented the whole of the Black demographic in their class. So together they pushed for narratives that represented everyone, including their LGBTQ+, Latinx, and Jewish classmates. But Gorman said it labeled them as the, quote, girls who cried race. Then she heard a speech that blew her away. It was by Pakistani activist and Nobel Prize laureate Malala Yousafzai at the United Nations Youth Assembly. In her talk, Yousafzai stressed that there was power and strength in words and that speaking up could change the entire world. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Throughout high school, Gorman really pushed herself to improve her poetry, and she started gaining confidence in her abilities. She knew she had a voice. The question was what to do with it. That's when she says something interesting just fell into her lap. It was an application to be the first ever Los Angeles Youth Poet Laureate. There was already an adult LA Poet Laureate program, But that year, they were opening up the position to a promising young poet to represent the city in literacy, expression, and culture. The winner would lead poetry workshops and events, run a poetry blog, and use social media to encourage other budding poets. Gorman said it was the perfect intersection of preparation and opportunity. So she submitted some poems and videos she'd put together and waited. One month later, the news came. She won. It was thrilling. The title gave Gorman the opportunity to practice her public speaking and provided her with a platform to discuss the issues she was most passionate about. But one perk in particular left Gorman speechless. The program connected her to a publishing company, and she was able to publish her first book, a collection of poetry called The One for Whom Food is Not Enough. And soon... She was on a roll. Her work as Youth Laureate landed Gorman on the radar of the United Nations, and in 2015, she followed in Malala Yousafzai's footsteps and was named a United Nations Youth Delegate. In 2016, she founded One Pen, One Page, an organization that promotes literacy through creative writing workshops to underserved youth. And soon, the leaders Gorman looked up to weren't just characters on her vision boards or the authors of her favorite books. Suddenly, they were on the phone, inviting Gorman to speak at the Empire State Building, at the Library of Congress, and even at the White House, where she got to meet Michelle and Barack Obama. Then, in her senior year of high school, Gorman won the Milken Family Foundation College Scholarship, given to high school students with distinguished academic performance, community service, and leadership, all the while overcoming personal and societal adversity. It was surreal. And with that, Gorman was accepted into the most prestigious university in the entire country. Harvard. College was a privilege. Harvard represented a whole other level of power Gorman could use toward her activism. The kind people all over the world would kill for. That power really sunk in when she walked through the library one day and saw flocks of tourists with their faces pressed against the glass. Suddenly, she was on the inside. Still, being on the inside didn't mean she finally fit in, or that her speech impediment disappeared, or that she was seen as someone whose voice carried weight. In one of her Harvard poetry classes, Gorman came across the same brand of naysayers she knew all too well. They said she was 
too emotional, too confident, or too political, which she says was code for, I'm not comfortable with a black woman who's using her voice. She also faced skepticism because of her age. After performing her poems, people would often come up to her and ask, did you really write that? Which Gorman says was fascinating because no one would have asked, say, a Robert Frost if he really wrote his poems. Gorman began working on a special project at Harvard she called Generation Empathy. It used virtual reality to allow youth from across the country, regardless of their race or socioeconomic status, to wander through a virtual museum, highlighting youth activists from around the world. The goal was to create a domino effect of the importance of teen leadership. Generation Empathy earned Gorman an Aussie Genius Award given to bolster the next Albert Einstein or Mark Zuckerberg, including a grant to help power her innovation. Then in her sophomore year, Gorman graduated from her Los Angeles Youth Poet Laureate status and was named the first ever National Youth Laureate. Gorman said the honor was almost overwhelming. She thought about her great-great-great-grandmother, she thought about the women leaders before her, and she thought about her responsibility to firmly grasp the torch. Gorman graduated from Harvard cum laude with a sociology degree. People often ask her why she didn't choose to study English. She said she wanted to broaden her education and deepen her understanding of issues like racism and police brutality, gender equality, and the incarceration of migrant children. Plus, Gorman says the two fields are actually inextricably linked. She says typically when we think of poetry, we think of romance and nature. But yet, she says it's been a luxury of white male poets throughout history to write about such things. For Gorman, using her platform to illuminate important social issues is a non-negotiable particularly during this turbulent time in American history. Gorman was invited to speak at the Forbes Women's Summit. She helped write the manifesto for Nike's Black History Month campaign. She got to meet Hillary Clinton, Al Gore, and Oprah Winfrey. But in the spring of 2020, Gorman's world traveling events and performances came to a screeching halt. Like the rest of us, she became homebound due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But true to form, Gorman didn't let that time go to waste. She penned her first ever children's book called Change Sings to empower young people to use their voices, illustrated by Lauren Long, who also illustrated Barack Obama's children's book. She says she read nonstop, and the rest of her time was spent navigating the wonderful world of Zoom. When one day, she was invited to a very unexpected Zoom call it was the Presidential Inaugural Committee. Sitting in her home in Los Angeles, Gorman listened as the Presidential Inaugural Committee gave her a piece of information that was almost incomprehensible. They told her that Dr. Jill Biden, the soon-to-be First Lady of the United States, had seen her perform at the Library of Congress and requested Gorman read a poem at the 2020 inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Gorman started dancing around the room. In no world had she expected that a 22-year-old would be entrusted with such an honor. 
She felt overjoyed, grateful, and shocked. But she was also terrified. For one thing, there had only been five inaugural poets before her, including Robert Frost and her hero, Maya Angelou. Those were some huge, articulate shoes to fill. There was also the tiny detail that the previous five inaugurations raked in an average of 27 million viewers each. But even those paled in comparison to Gorman's own special brand of nerves, her speech impediment. Even well into her time at college, she wasn't yet confident saying the words Harvard or poetry or even Gorman. And there she was, about to put her impediment on display in front of the entire country and beyond, especially knowing it flared up when she felt most nervous. But Gorman knew what to do. She needed to tap out of the anxiety and into the responsibility, the responsibility to those likewise afflicted, to her ancestors and to anyone, anywhere who'd been silenced. This time, she wouldn't avoid the letter R. Amazingly, the inaugural committee didn't give Gorman any explicit guidelines about what to write. They just told her that the theme of the day was America United, with the promise of a new chapter for the country. This was music to Gorman's ears, because it was the very message she'd been spreading since she first put pen to paper. So she got to work. As any writer will likely attest, Gorman says the writing process is excruciating. In order to convey the message of unity and change, Gorman says she knew she had to acknowledge the dark chapter the country was enduring. She'd have to make division, racial inequality, gun control, and democracy touchstones of the poem, while simultaneously making space for hope and healing and joy. Gorman says the country had also just endured four years where the very sanctity of words had been violated and misappropriated. More than perhaps ever before, words mattered. She spoke to former inaugural poets for advice, Elizabeth Alexander and Richard Blanco, who performed at President Obama's two inaugurations. Alexander told Gorman she already had the words inside her. Her only task was to bring them to life. Blanco reminded her she was representing the whole of American poetry. So every day, Gorman listened to the soundtrack to Hamilton and chipped away at her inaugural poem, hoping to unearth the requisite words. Then, on January 6, 2021, the world watched in horror as a violent mob of President Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol, two weeks before Joe Biden's inauguration. And the rest of Gorman's poem wrote itself. She called it, The Hill We Climb. On January 20th, 2021, Amanda Gorman stepped down the very stairs that only two weeks before had been stormed by insurrectionists and white supremacists. Lady Gaga sang the national anthem. Jennifer Lopez and Garth Brooks performed. Senators spoke. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris took their oaths of office. And suddenly, it was Gorman's turn. She quietly wondered to herself why she chose to put the word rise into her poem four times. But the youngest inaugural poet in history stepped up to the podium 
and delivered a poem that, for five minutes and 31 seconds, left cell phones in America untouched and 33 million pairs of eyeballs glued to the television. Then, a single question echoed across the country. Who is that girl? The following day, hundreds of articles emerged about Gorman, and the masses learned of her seemingly undetectable speech impediment, the bullying she'd endured, and the hill she'd climbed to the top of the poetry world. Her Instagram followers jumped from 3,000 to 3 million. Oprah Winfrey tweeted that she was cheering, and that so too was the late, great Maya Angelou. Hillary Clinton called Gorman's performance stunning. Michelle Obama tweeted, Black girl magic. The New York Times called her a tour de force. And Lynn manuel Miranda said Gorman revealed a nation to itself. And if the hardest part of an artist's job is to fully and honestly meet the moment, Amanda Gorman delivered a masterclass. There was a tiny beat in this story that was easy to miss. It was when Amanda Gorman first received an application to be the first ever Los Angeles Youth Poet Laureate. Look what fell out of that application. She published her first book, then came the United Nations, speaking at the Library of Congress, then the White House, a scholarship, Harvard, the Forbes Women's Summit, then that life-altering call from the Biden Inauguration Committee. Amanda Gorman had climbed a big hill to reach that moment. The hills we climb can contain hidden gifts, but they often come in plain wrappers, hard to discern at first. Her speech impairment meant she was bullied, humiliated, and underestimated. It made her shy and introspective. But that introspection led to a rich interior world of poetry, a world where writing was non-judgmental. She worked hard on her poetry, and her acute concern for pronunciation actually made her a better, more nuanced performer. So when that Poet Laureate application appeared, preparation met opportunity. The day after the inauguration, Gorman sat down for an interview with Anderson Cooper on CNN, where he revealed that he too suffered from a speech impediment, stuttering. Gorman told him she's proud to be a member of the Speech Difficulty Club. That club has a very esteemed membership. Eleven U.S. presidents had to overcome a disability. They had hills to climb before they made it to Capitol Hill. Not long after that historic day on January 20th, Amanda Gorman published her famous inauguration poem as a book titled the Hill We Climb, an inaugural poem for the country. Someone named Oprah Winfrey did the foreword. It not only made the New York Times bestseller list, it made history, with the biggest week one sales of any poetry title ever published. Biden's inauguration of a speech-delayed president isn't the only one Amanda Gorman plans to attend, by the way. As soon as she turns 35 the age of eligibility, she plans to run for President of the United States. Save the date, 
January 20th, 2036. Never, ever give up. New dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light. If only we are brave enough to see it. If only we are brave enough to be it. Amanda Gorman. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. We regret to inform you this episode is researched by Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. Rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, let us know of any rejection stories you'd like to hear. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.